Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Happy, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is in partnership with the Koran Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Neustein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Neustein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shimuel. Last time we began the last unit of the book, the final four chapters, chapter 21, 22, 23, and 24. Chapter 21 recounted the cryptic episode of the drought during David's kingship, the three years of drought, of divine displeasure. Ultimately, the cause was discovered, Shaul's vengeance against the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites demanded that seven of Shaul's descendants be turned over to suffer vicarious punishment for his crimes against them. And David turned over those descendants, except for Mephibosheth, the son of Yonatan, in order to keep his pledge to Jonathan. And we contrasted at the time, Shaul breaking the pledge which the Israelites had made to the Givonim in the book of Joshua versus David's maintaining the pledge that he offered to Yonatan. In effect, this episode was presented to us at the end of Sefer Shemuel Bet, not because it necessarily belongs here chronologically, but in order to highlight a particular character trait of David, namely that David kept his word. The episode of the Givonim was followed by a memory of four battles against Philistine giants. In all of those situations, the Israelites were preserved, the Philistines were defeated, David himself was saved, through the intervention of Avishai, his loyal nephew. And in effect, these four battles against the Philistine giants illustrated another aspect of David's kingship. First of all, his great accomplishment in throwing off the Philistine yoke. And second of all, the great courage and loyalty of the warriors who battled with him and on his behalf. I presented the possibility last time that the final four chapters of the book are not necessarily what happens chronologically at the end of David's reign, but rather are offered as some sort of a retrospective of David's kingship, such that as we leave his story behind, we might appreciate the salient features of his kingship and his personality, and his character, so that we might understand why David occupies such a significant place in our biblical history. I mentioned last time that the core of these final four chapters consists of two epic poems, one of them lengthy, one of them very short, the first a song of triumph, chapter 22. The second, David's final words at the beginning of chapter 23, 
and we will now begin to examine these core texts. Chapter 22 is perhaps one of the most epic poems in the Hebrew Bible. It describes David's triumph and victory and salvation from the hands of his many foes. Verse number one reads, Vayidaber David Lashem, David spoke these words to God, the words of this very song, on the day that God saved him from the clutches of all of his enemies and from the clutches of Shaul. Many of the commentaries assume that this particular poem is written at the end of David's life, after he can reflect upon all of his triumphs and all of his victories and all of his unexpected salvations. At the same time, as we look at the contents of the poem, we may discover, in fact, that once again, chronologically, it may not represent the final moments of David's career, but rather is placed here at the end of the book in order to remind us what is it about David that makes him so unique. We can effectively divide this lengthy chapter, chapter 22, David's epic poem of triumph, into two basic halves. In the first half, David is described as an object of God's salvation. How he was overcome, how he was overwhelmed, how he was in danger, how he was almost captured by his foes, and how God intervened and plucked him to safety. The second half of the poem, on the other hand, describes David not as a passive object of God's salvation, but as an active participant in the process of that salvation by being a courageous warrior who engages the enemy and defeats him. In effect, we might say that in terms of the largest possible breakdown, this song holds at its core an idea of David's uniqueness. Even as David saw himself as the recipient of divine favor and divine intervention, he always took initiative. He always had the courage to act. He never remained passive, but tried his very best in order to succeed. It's not dissimilar from our discussion quite some time ago in the first book of Samuel, when we consider the rise of David to the throne. Chapter 16 of Samuel 1 described David as he was brought into Shaul's orbit, really by divine intervention, serendipity, if you will. David was a skilled harp player, and Shaul needed music in order to calm his soul, and David was therefore summoned, though he took no initiative in the process. And that stood in glaring contrast to chapter 17, which followed, that spoke about David, who was ready and prepared to stand up and to face down Goliath, the Philistine giant, in spite of the fact that every other Israelite was afraid to do so, including the king himself. So chapter 17 was very much a story of David who took initiative and demonstrated his courage and his resolve. And if we ask ourselves, well, which one is it? Was David 
the object of divine intervention? Or was David the subject who took his destiny into his own hands? And the answer is, of course, David was both. What made David so unique was that even in his moments of absolute triumph, he recognized that his success came from God. And as a result of that, certain failures notwithstanding, for the most part, David demonstrated a humility of spirit and a nobility of action throughout his career. In the first part of chapter 22, David describes God as his rock and as his fortress. Vayomar, Hashem sal'i umetsudati umefalti li, God is my rock and God is my fortress and God is my refuge and he will save me from my enemies. And that is the preamble to the song. The song goes on to describe how David feels surrounded and overwhelmed. The waters that, that threaten to cover him over and to drown him. He cried out to God, the El Elokai Ekra, and I prayed to my Lord, and God heard my voice from his sanctuary, and my outcry reached his ears, and this is then followed by a theophany. God's presence manifest, as David describes it, through the image of the thunderstorm, the rain clouds, and the lightning, and the thundering noise as God's presence is manifest. And even as that presence is manifest, God will pluck David from harm. Yishlach mimarom yikacheni, verse number 17. He sent forth from the heavens and he took me. He drew me out of the mighty waters and he saved me from my powerful foes, even though they were more powerful than I. In effect, the imagery that David employs, the waters that threaten to drown, the God manifest in the thunderstorm who rescues his loyal servant, it's an image which connects us directly to two other epic poems. Number one, the Song at the Sea in Exodus chapter 15, where it was actually quite literal as the people of Israel journeyed through the Sea of Reeds and the waters threatened to overwhelm them. God plucked them to safety and then drowned their foes, the Egyptian taskmasters in the deep. In the book of Judges, Devorah will use similar imagery to describe the miraculous Israelite victory over the tyrant Sisra. The heavens themselves fought against Sisra, and he and his forces were overwhelmed by the river Kishon as his iron chariots were swept away. So this image of being overwhelmed by waters, in danger of drowning, and then plucked to safety through divine intervention, is one which is well grounded in our collective memory 
And now David draws upon it to describe his own experiences. As David sees it, the reason why God showed him favor was because he was a just human being who followed God's laws and took them seriously and guarded himself from sin. And therefore, as he puts it in verse number 25, God paid me back in accordance with my righteousness and in accordance with my purity, he paid me back. While many of the commentaries see this particular poem, as I said, as written at the very end of David's career, quite frankly, as some of the moderns point out, it is difficult to read these verses in the aftermath of David's crime with Bathsheba. It's difficult to imagine that David would still be thinking himself, thinking of himself as completely blameless and above reproach. More likely, therefore, is that this particular poem was not composed at the end of David's life, but rather perhaps at the beginning of his career as the king of Israel when in fact he had been saved from Shaul's clutches, when in fact he had succeeded in overwhelming the Philistines and the other petty kingdoms that threatened his realm. It would have been entirely appropriate for David to be uttering these lines in chapter 10, perhaps, of our book, Shmuel Bet, before the crime of Bathsheba, And therefore, perhaps, the best reading is to suggest that although this poem was composed earlier in David's career, it is reserved for the end of the book because it offers us a glimpse into David's essential character. If we had to reduce David's character, personality, and religious conviction to one principle, it would be David trusts in God implicitly, no matter what the challenge, no matter what the difficulty, David will never abandon his trust in God. That's what the song is about. David goes on, now moving from the passive object to the active warrior. David describes how he runs how he vaults, how he fights, how he defeats. Verse number 35, God who teaches my hands to wage war, to bend the bow of bronze. God who gives me the shield of salvation. God who allows me to pursue my enemies and destroy them, and I will beat them down, says David, and I will completely overwhelm them. So in the second part of the poem, as I pointed out, David now reminds us of his great skills as a warrior. And in fact, it would be impossible to look at David's career and not to focus on that as being absolutely central. The shepherd who becomes a fighter, the man of the flock who leads his people Israel into battle and triumphantly pursues his enemies. 
So once again, we have this particular emphasis in David's song where he makes clear that even as he takes initiative, ultimately salvation comes from God and God alone. So the song began with David naming God as the source of his strength and his fortress. From there, it took us to an image of David overwhelmed, in danger of drowning under the rushing waters until God, who appeared in a thunderstorm, plucked him to safety. And from there to an image of David, the warrior who defeats his foes through his own efforts, but never forgets that his success comes from God. And in the end, the song will conclude with a famous verse, Migdol Yeshuot Malko, a tower of salvation to his king. God who does compassion to his anointed, for David and for his descendants forever. I'd like to point out that this particular chapter, chapter 22, has its perfect parallel in Sefer Tehillim, in the book of Psalms, chapter 18, where a poem that is almost perfectly identical to this one is preserved. And the commentaries debate which came first. In all probability, the Tehillim poem perhaps is an edited version of our particular chapter, edited that is, for the purposes of including it in the larger corpus of the Book of Psalms, which is, of course, religious poetry, which speaks to David's emotional and spiritual life, his relationship with God. That's the entirety of Sefer Tehillim. Whether it's David's chapters, the, the chapters ascribed to him, or the chapters authored by others. In effect, we would expect to find a poem such as chapter 22 in Shmuel Bet in the Tehillim collection. And perhaps the Tehillim collection really represents a more polished version of our particular chapter. Or to think of it differently, many of the Tehillim in biblical times were set to music, were performed as part of the temple service. And one could imagine as David's poem was included in that collection, that some editorial things may have been done in order to be able to include it in that more musical collection of psalms. In any case, as I said, the differences between the two versions are relatively minor. The Abarbanel counted about 75 differences in total, but many of them are minor, some of them are less minor. The final verse, however, is one that is different in Sefer Tehillim. In Sefer Tehillim it says, Magdil Yeshuot Malko Adolam, God who magnifies the salvation of his king and acts compassionately to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. In the liturgy, ultimately, we incorporate both versions as part of the grace after meals. 
on Shabbat and holidays, we quote the version in our particular chapter, Migdol Yeshuat Malko, and during the weekday, we quote the version in Sefer Tehillim, Magdil Yeshuot Malko. And perhaps the reason is very straightforward. Shabbat and Yom Tov, as it were, are our refuge, our tower of strength, which is what David is referring to. So on those days, we will say Migdol, and the rest of the time during the weekday, we will say Magdil, which speaks to God magnifying David's salvation. I should just point out that this final verse of David's triumphant song actually brings us back to the very beginning of Sefer Shemuel Aleph. In chapter 2, if you remember, Hannah's song of triumph after she becomes pregnant and gives birth to Samuel and feels that finally she has been able to triumph over her rival Penina. And Hannah will sing to God and praise his intervention. And one thing she will say towards the end is the following, chapter 2, verse 10 of, Tihil, of Sefer Shemuel Aleph, God, Yechatu Mirivav, brings terror to those that oppose him. He thunders from the heavens. He will judge the ends of the earth. He gives strength to his king and raises up the glory of his anointed. It is almost the same word, certainly the same image. And whereas in Hannah's prayer, a brighter future of a king ruling over the people justly and saving the oppressed from their oppressors is only a prayer for Hannah. In David's version, it has become reality. And as it were, perhaps, these two poems therefore serve as the bookends for Sefer Shemuel, with 1 Samuel beginning with Hannah's prayer, and the second book of Samuel just about concluding with David's prayer. And in the interim, we saw, of course, how Hannah's vision and Hannah's dream of a righteous king became a reality. And therefore, David's prayer hearkens back to that original one by Hannah and reminds us of the beginning of the book. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.